Are the Gospels eyewitness accounts that we can potentially trust? Or are they second or third hand claims that we should skeptically reject? The New Testament Gospels were not written by eyewitnesses or by people who knew eyewitnesses. In the Gospels, they passed the test as well as any ancient account. Our guest today, Jay Warner Wallace, became a Christian while investigating the Gospels with the tools of a homicide detective. So I'm trying to sort out the lie from the truth. Why would I consider this even to begin with? Well, because he's making a claim. In a 10-year update to his book, Cold Case Christianity, and I can't believe it's been 10 years, Jim, you make the case that the Gospels are eyewitness testimony. We're going to get into that today. Jim, thanks for coming on, man. This is always fun. Well, it's, you know, it's 10 years that you actually are part of that story because you're the mm. one who said, hey, you should write a book about this when we were training students 10 years ago. Actually, probably more. It was probably right around yeah. 2011, maybe, because by the time you get That's a book right. published, it takes about a year. Or so, so I think it was probably 2000, late 11 or early 12 when we were uh, mm. on a trip to Berkeley together, and my daughter uh, was on that trip right. with us, and she ended up going to school at your school after that, mm -hmm. and and she was, we were just there teaching some of these things I've been teaching in youth group for I don't know a bunch of years, um, because it really was the process that I used to examine the scriptures. And so you were the one who said, Hey, you should write a book about this. And I remember I had, I think I had two cases in trial and, wow. and I had no margin. I had no margin to do this. And I went home and told Susie, I, you know, Sean says we should write an outline. And she's like, well, why don't you? I mean, if Sean's saying he's going to help you figure out how to do this, why don't you do it? And I thought for sure she was going to say, yeah, you're right. We have no margin for that, for that, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but it ended up being what became cold case Christianity. So I owe it all to you. Well, I don't know about owe it all to me, but the moment I heard that presentation, I thought this is such a unique, fresh approach and you cover a ton of stuff in the book, but we're going to kind of focus down on the claim that the gospels are eyewitness testimony. Now, what okay. I love about you is you don't approach this as an academic who's read books. You've been examining eyewitness testimony and presenting this kind of evidence before a trial. So you're kind of bottom up rather than top down looking at this approach in a sense. Now, before yeah. we get to your case that the gospels contain eyewitness testimony, what kind of training did you get as a detective to be able to identify and analyze eyewitness testimony? Well, everyone who starts as a patrol officer, right, that gets some training even before they get training because you're taking reports and you're interviewing eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. And so you get a sense of the texture and the kind of level of variation you're always going to see between any eyewitnesses. You get that while you're working patrol. But at some point, um, they, they said this dude who had a master's degree, they thought, well, maybe we should see if he can do any investigations. And I ended up um, in our couple of investigative teams that were street teams doing street dope, doing, um, you know, working stuff like that, where you're working gangs. Uh, and so you do a lot. And I eventually was made it into an investigative position on a surveillance team. Still wasn't a Christian. But okay. I, had, I was already a senior detective by the time I, I became a Christian because I, you know, you spend enough time on these. Trust me, all of us who work in law enforcement, we're looking for that pay raise. So, so we're collecting our years working as an investigator to hopefully get to advanced investigator. So, so I was working in that capacity and um, stumbled into a church with my wife uh, because she wanted to go to church. And, and mm. so my training, by, now by that time, I actually had a bunch of training. I had um, a investigative because the details you get through an intermediate and advanced investigator, you're going to go to schools. Oh, These wow. are all post post certified schools. So I ended up in post certified schools to do investigations. I ended up in post certified schools to do in interviews because on my team, I was the guy wow. who was doing interviews. And one of the ways you develop cases is when someone's arrested and they're in jail, uh, you can pop in and pull them out of the holding cell before they go to at the court and you can ask them questions and if they want to help you as an informant mm. it's all about interview skills and so i was doing that every day every morning and and people saw that was working for us and so mm. uh, they sent me to schools and one of those schools i'm not sure if they still do this anymore but i think by the time you're in an intermediate interviewing school you're probably going to put your foot in forensic statement analysis and i did i was i went to a class did the entire uh, course and then i fell in love with it and now this is not a science this is an art 
So you only get good at it if you do it again and again and again and again. Mm. And you have to make a lot of mistakes and you have to be willing to make a lot of mistakes. And I did. Mm. But then I became obsessed with it and, and people were getting irritated that I was working with because I wanted to stop everything. <laughs> Let's go interview this guy and have him write this out and do some forensic statement analysis. Uh, but it ended up being one of the major things that we did in all of our cold cases because the DA I was working with, he loved the idea and he wanted to get good at it. And so mm. his name is John Lewin, and he's pretty well known here in Los Angeles County. He's the, the Robert Durst case, most famously. And anyway, the point is, he's always been a fan of this. And so we used it over and over and over again. Now, you're right about the idea of being a detective instead of an academic. And, and here's the difference, I think. And you know this, because some people have both kinds of what I call smarts, right? Street smarts. Mm. That's a title of our friend Greg Kokel's book. But a lot of it is you see really smart, educated people who are silly victims of crimes they didn't need to be a victim of because they don't have any street smarts. Like mm -hmm. they have, they lack a certain level of common sense that can uh, ask, can see immediately, that is probably not where I should go. Or that is probably not what I should do. And a lot of the kind of street smarts that detectives get is is not that we've read uh, books on what eyewitnesses do. It's that we, gotcha. we have been on, in the trenches with eyewitnesses and we kind of learn it firsthand. And we mm. also are better at spotting the lie because what profession has a group of people who is consistently lying to you? aside hmm. from law enforcement. It's almost like there's a probably 70-30% chance on any call of a disturbance or a domestic violence or whatever that someone's going to lie to you. And this, the resolution of that call is going to uh, come down to whether or not you can spot the deception. So a lot of that is like, well, can you teach that? Of course. And we've had classes on deception indicators. And of course, we do that as part of that forensic statement analysis. But to be honest, most of that stuff you're learning just talking to people and mm. and dealing with people and that was my whole life that was my dad's whole life he would mm. talk about it when i was yeah. growing up so wow. and now it's become jimmy's whole life my son so mm. you find yourself just kind of leveraging what you learn on the street yeah that makes total sense it was passed down to you you've been doing it for years you've been studying it it's kind of in your dna so to speak now when it comes to say making a case how important is eyewitness testimony compared to other kinds of evidence for securing a conviction in a court of law? How would you weigh it compared to DNA or other forms of evidence, whatever it may be? I weighed it just exactly even. It's no better or no worse. I don't, oh, I don't look okay. at eyewitness testimony and say, well, this is the, I got to have, look, eyewitnesses lie all the time. Mm. So we have to do something and we can be mistaken also about material evidence like DNA. Are we sure it's even the right DNA we swabbed? Are we sure it came from the right spot? You know, fingerprint. Did we lift the right fingerprint? Is it possible this has been contaminated before we got there? I mean, there's lots of things you have to test and you have to test both direct evidence. That's eyewitness accounts. And you have to test indirect evidence, which is DNA and fingerprints and material evidence and everything, blood spatter, everything else. So you have to test both of these. And in the end, the judge's instructions to juries is that you are to treat them, direct evidence, eyewitnesses, and material evidence, indirect evidence, as having the exact same value. Wow. So okay. they are not to be treated as one. It's, it says in the instructions, none, neither has any greater weight than the other. So I think eyewitness testimony is important, but I think untested eyewitness testimony is ridiculously, it's, it's actually troublesome. Mm -hmm. So that's why I knew when I read the gospels for the first time, the issue is not whether or not this is eyewitness testimony. It's could I test it in a way to determine if it is, and could mm -hmm. I test it in a way to determine if it's reliable? So this is probably true for other, what other historians do. I don't know. I just know what detectives do. You know, I'll say one more thing about this. I was, okay. people kind of questioned me about whether or not, you know, I was working cold cases when I first got saved. So uh, my dad had a case called the Terry Lynn Hollis case. Um, it got solved in 2019, ultimately, but it occurred 1972. Wow. And I was 11 when Terry was 10. When she died and my dad got the case, he talked about it. And it shook our entire family because I was about the same age as Terry. And it changed the way we protected our kids in that city because this girl got snatched off the street. It was terrible. So in the end, uh, I, it was important to me. It went unsolved. And mm -hmm. when I was doing forensic statement analysis before I got to become a Christian and I was working in the back room, our undercover position, 
I happened to stumble across the uh, big notebook that had the interview of the guy who confessed killing Terry Lynn Hollis. There was a mm -hmm. guy who confessed to it in 1973. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice? Maybe they moved off of him, by the way. They determined he wasn't the killer. And I thought, well, maybe they're wrong. Wouldn't it be great to solve this like that by just doing a forensic <laughs> statement analysis or Ronald, his name is Ron, of his of his statement, of his his uh, interview. And so I first just dove in. So I started investigating my first cold case about <clears throat> a year or two before I became a Christian using forensic statement analysis because I was so involved in it. But I was not assigned as a cold case detective because most detectives in America who are investigating cold cases uh, you would say, is that a cold case detective? Yes. Is he officially assigned as a cold case detective? No. He's either a homicide detective or robbery homicide detective, maybe a forgery. Okay. If he, he's just working a case. So that's how I first got started in working cold cases was that Terry Lynn Hollis case. Okay. Interesting. That's helpful. So you start at that point. You've obviously been doing it for years and years now. Mm -hmm. How do you determine, like, say that document, for example, that you, you have? Somebody wrote this document at the time you started this, it had been decade or decades before. How do you root if it's reliable and if it's eyewitness testimony? What kind of things do you look for while you're signing that? And of course, everybody knows we're going to shift and go to the gospel soon. But I want to get in the mind of how you think as a detective looking at a document like that. So here's a good, good example of this. This guy's name, I think, was Ronald Kozak. And and it's, it's in the news, so it's not like I'm giving away an investigative secret. And he, he confessed to the entire thing and said he was there hmm. when it occurred. He did it. So he's claiming to be there. So he not only saw it as he was doing it, he's claiming to be there. Okay. Uh, it's a long confession, about a thousand pages. So the first claim is- Wait, why a thousand this, pages, not just a well, thousand words? A thousand page transcript. Yeah, about five. Because, you know, we're, we're, it's double spaced and the wow, investigator okay. asks a question, okay. then Ronald responds, blah, blah, blah. Got it. So, it, so this is big. He has two notebooks. It was two red notebooks. So um, I'm looking at this case and I'm thinking, okay, so why would I consider this even to begin with? Well, because he's making a claim. He's making the claim internally in the document that he was there. So I got to test it. Now, is it is he an eyewitness? Is it reliable? How would I know? Well, does the stuff he's telling me match up with the evidence we have? We have some evidence that kind of shows us um, the kind of murder this was. Um, and he's going to have to describe. We're not. Gonna, the sad thing about it was that the initial investigators gave him too much information in advance that he just kind of leveraged to make up a story. Mm -hmm. What you want to do, honestly, is to give him no information. You tell me what happened. Then I'll see if what you're saying matches the evidence I have in hand. And once we did it that way, it didn't match. And we did solve it ultimately with DNA years later, and it wasn't him. So he, he was lying the whole time. So what am I looking for? Is there some claim? And also, look, if I said um, I, I did this and I took her body to the uh, hills in Oxnard, but there is no Oxnard. Or he describes Oxnard and he describes it inaccurately because he's from the East Coast and doesn't even know what Oxnard looks like. Well, then I'm starting to doubt. But if he okay. accurately describes this, I can at least say, well, he's familiar with the area. So I'm trying to sort out uh, the lie from the truth because every lie contains truth. That's what a good lie is. Hmm. You ever played that game, spot, spot the lie game where, yep. where I'm going to tell yep. you, well, what do I do? I, I tell you a true story, but I change one detail. It's really hard to catch it. Because it kind of sounds like a true story. I've just changed the detail. I could tell you how my dog ran away, give mm -hmm. you every detail that makes sense, but actually it was my cat that ran away. So it is a lie, but it's harder to catch because all those other details line up. That's what we're doing in these kinds of investigations. That is not a game I would want to play with you. That would not be fair. Well, you'd probably fool me because, I mean, we are, look, I, I'm not a Sherlock Holmes, right? Don't you love watching that show where Sherlock spots some little weird thing over here and he puts these, connects all these dots back to the killer? That doesn't really happen. I mean, but, mm. but when we do have some processes in place. That's why we test eyewitnesses under those four criteria that I always talk about because there is a, a test in place. Uh, but but uh, number one, does it appear to be an eyewitness account in the sense that it is not just giving you a bunch of facts? For example, compare the Gospel of Thomas mm -hmm. with the Gospel of Matthew. But I don't think anyone looks at the Gospel of Thomas. You might say, well, maybe somebody is there to hear these statements, but it doesn't even appear to be an eyewitness account because it does not describe in any kind of chronology any series of events. It's just a set of proverbial statements of Jesus that could be true or it could be false. How would you test them? 
He's not saying he entered, uh, um, you know, um, Capernaum and he uh, went into the house of, of, of Peter's mother. He's not, he's not making claims about a sequence of events that is typical of eyewitness testimony. And also, if you compare like the Gospels to like Peter Pan, like the author of Peter Pan never sure. claims that it's that it's, it's history. Mm-hmm. He never claims it's, he's, he's viewing this as an eyewitness. The gospel authors are quite different. Luke says, I, 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 I didn't see this stuff. I was with Paul in the book of Acts, but, but I, I talked to the people who were the eyewitnesses. Oh, you mean there were eyewitnesses? Apparently. Well, if there were eyewitnesses, according to Luke, like what, what are they witnessing? There you go. Now we're looking at claims. The only question is, is their testimony reliable? Okay, so in a court of law, you would say eyewitness testimony is equal to other kinds of testimony. In assessing other kinds the, of e- other kinds of evidence, eyewitness okay. testimony is a form Got of it. evidence equal to other uh, forms of evidence. Good, good clarification. Thank you. When it comes to the say the gospels and their reliability, would that mm-hmm. same thing apply? Like whether they're ultimately eyewitness accounts or not, doesn't determine if they're true, or would it help our cause more so if we have reason to believe that they're eyewitnesses? Uh, well, um, okay. So I think the identity of the eyewitness doesn't matter to me, but the, fa- okay. the, the question is, is this written by an eyewitness does matter to me? Okay. Because the easiest thing to do uh, to lie about Jesus is just wait till everyone who knows the truth is dead and then say anything you want, because there's no one, even if it's not written early enough, there's not even forget about the fact that I can't be an eyewitness if it's written in the second century. The better thing is that I can't be fact-checked by an eyewitness if I write it in the second mm. century. So the question is, is it early? That's important to me because it's harder okay. to lie early than it is to lie late. And then could it be tested in some way? You know, that matters as well. So I think in the end, those are the things, those are the highest values I hold. Because by the way, this happens all the time in cold cases. You know, you, you, you're 30 years after the case mm. and, you, and they thought they interviewed all five people who saw it. But it turns out there was a sixth person who was never comfortable talking about it 30 years ago mm. because he or she says, I, I was too close to the suspect and now I don't fear the suspect anymore. So I'm willing to talk today. Well, okay, were you really there? I mean, how do I, I got to test this thing because you can make any kind of claim. I don't know if you were really there. I got to start to investigate those issues. Were you really there? Okay. So we haven't gotten into your case yet, but do you think Mm -hmm. the gospels could pass as testimony in a modern court of law? Is that relevant or not relevant in determining their reliability and historicity? No, they would not be admitted in a court of law and it is not relevant. And here's why, because there's a hearsay rule. So, so hearsay, basically you under the, in in the United States, you have the right to confront your accuser. And if you cannot confront your accuser, that testimony is not allowed to be heard. So if I came in and said, Hey, my dad told me that he talked to this guy and he said X, well, someone's going to say, well, then get your dad in here. Because you didn't hear it. Your dad heard it. You can't re- testify for your dad. Uh, he, you can't be cross-examined. I, I can't, you can't ask me the question. Well, what, did he, what was he wearing? I don't know. My dad just said he said this. Okay, then get your dad in here so I can ask all the questions that can cross-examine the accuser. Okay. But my dad's dead. Okay, well, then you can't, that testimony is not coming in. Now, there are some exceptions in federal law. Okay, I'm not going to forget about that for a second. In the cases that I work, that's hearsay. But that's a standard that we developed for reasons of protecting the accused. It's not a standard we would apply. In other words, we would rather um, uh, free, um, we don't want to convict anyone falsely. We'd rather free 100 guilty people than falsely incarcerate one Mm. innocent person. So what we do is we set a standard that's really high. But if you held the hearsay rule, against claims related to history, there's virtually nothing you could know or would be allowed to know outside the lifetime of an eyewitness. So if you said, well, what are my great grandparents gotcha. like? You couldn't ask your grandparents because they're not, they can't be, you know, you can't ask your parents anyway, for sure, because they, how are they going to know? They're trusting what their grand, what their parents said that you can't, you need to get to the actual eyewitness. Well, can you imagine how short history, reliable history would be? It would be in the lifetime of like two, 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 two generations. And then after that, everything's hearsay. So you can't trust anything in history. That's not how we do history. So you can apply the uh, the, the uh, criteria that we use for eyewitness reliability to historical claims, and you should. 
But you, you shouldn't think that that the fact that we can't bring in hearsay in a criminal trial means we could never use it to determine history. If that's the case, be, be ready to throw out everything you think you know about your own family. Gotcha. Fair enough. All right. We're talking with Jay Warner Wallace about his 10-year update to his book, Cold Case Christianity, one of the top books that I recommend for Christians and non-Christians to engage the Gospels. So earlier you said you started kind of going to church, and this time you were practicing as a cold case detective. You decide to investigate Mark in particular in the Gospels. What was your mindset going into this? And I asked because my dad was challenged by some Christians and he was setting out to disprove Christianity kind of with a legal mindset. Were you trying to see if it's true? Were you trying to disprove it? And what were your assumptions about the Gospels when you started? So I'm pretty neutral. I was pretty neutral about it. I mean, I, my, okay. I was a pretty committed um, um, naturalist. I didn't think that anything that was recorded anywhere that included a miracle, that part couldn't be true, even if other parts of the story were true. I was I was a very committed naturalist. But I wasn't like Lee Strobel or like your dad, who said, well, let me show you why this is, this is insane. Instead, I, I just didn't know any other way to investigate any claim. Mm. So I had a, I had a, a sociology teacher. Now, by the way, I was not assigned to cold cases when I first walked in, I, but I was working a cold case, two different things. Uh, same skill set though. By the way, the skill set that cold case detectives use is pretty much the skill set I use on every fresh homicide. If I get mm. called out tomorrow to something to consult, I'm just going to use this. I mean, the, the thing's only four hours old. I'm still going to use the same skill set. Gotcha. So it's not much different. It's not like we have oh, a special mm. cold case skill set. Okay. You know, it's not like <laughs> okay. that. But so, so in the end, what I was trying to do was to to say, okay, I've got this. I, I, this pastor was uh, very much a seeker sensitive. Remember those old terms we used to use in the nineties uh, for pastors? They were seeker sensitive I pastors do. who would pitch the Jesus in a way that he expecting that there's probably a non-believer, a seeker in the. Mm -hmm. and I'm not a seeker, but my wife probably was. I think she was more interested than I was for sure. Um, and so we, we get in there and he pitches Jesus a certain way. He said he was um, super important, the smartest man who ever lived, the most important man, the most influential man, all these claims. And I thought, well, is that true? So I bought a Bible, which is sitting back here on my shelf. And I was just going to read to see what's, what were the wise statements. When I was in high school, I had a sociology teacher who was a Baha'i. And he uh, got me to read the, the wise teaching of Baha'u'llah. He gave me a book. And I remember reading it and thinking, oh, this is some really good stuff, like fortune cookie stuff. You know, it's like, you know, it's like wise people. <laughs> there are a number of wise people. Maybe Gandhi said a bunch of wise things. I mean, sure. like, what, what, we write books, we quote wise people all the time. And I was interested in wisdom. So I bought the scripture to see if, if it was actually wise. Now, as I'm reading it, it struck me that these things were variant. They, the, the details, the way that these scenes were described were not the same exactly. Uh, sometimes they would overlap because clearly if you've, if you've heard Frank Turek describe something a thousand ways and you're going to describe it, you might describe it like Frank Turek. This is not unusual, right? But a lot of stuff had variation and that variation is what captured me because there's always variation between eyewitness accounts. And it's not something that's ever shaken me. As a matter of fact, I'm always suspicious when there isn't variation. And the mm. only thing we ever ask uh, a, a, the dispatcher when we get called out to a homicide is, hey, have the officers on the scene, separate the eyewitnesses, because I'm going to be about an hour and a half before I get there. I don't want them talking to each other because they'll just line up their stories. I want to see the messy puzzle because it's in that puzzling together of all the messiness that we're going to catch a bad guy. Mm. So I, I want... To the, the puzzle. And when I saw that the scriptures were puzzling this way, I thought, hmm, now I'm interested. But not because I'm trying to okay. prove them wrong, just because that provoked me to say, well, let's just test them. Why not? Mm. What's there, by the way, you cannot test the writings of Baha'u'llah because they don't make any historical claims. Mm. They make no claims involving a, a chronology of events. Every murder is a chronology of events. There's that period before the murder, that period after the murder, the, the cataclysmic event. Mm -hmm. So so I just knew that was the approach I could take. And and that's what got me interested. It, I was not really motivated against or for. I, mm -hmm. I figured, well, there's going to be some truth in here and some lie. But the biggest okay. claim that's important is going to be the resurrection. And at some point as I'm reading this, I'm going, that, that this is really what separates Jesus 
the, all the miracles can, but look, there's lots of, of, of wisdom from people who, who did a number of different things. Jesus uniquely rises from the grave and that separates him from Baha'u'llah for sure. So, so I just wanted to know if that claim was true. Now, this might be jumping ahead to your case, but you notice mm -hmm. the variance across the Gospels. Are there any other things that just kind of jumped out to you that made you pause, go, hmm, this is interesting, this is different, that was kind of building the case in your mind towards them being eyewitness and ultimately reliable? Well, there's a ton of things, and I've, I kind of try to talk about them a little bit. Uh, there's some of the same things I suspect that textual critics will use and kind of identify okay. as internal evidence. But it is true when some, when people make claims, eyewitness claims, they will often include details that seem important to them, but you never end up using those details in the case proper before a jury because it, they weren't really, they're just like little, and you see this sometimes, right? With eyewitnesses, you know, that, that there's no point in my even mentioning that to a jury because it doesn't do anything to advance the case. But okay. you see some of that in the Gospels. You see the the kind of um, mm. what, what has been called um, undesigned coincidences. And not every undesigned mm -hmm. coincidence, I think, has evidential value. So I don't okay. use that term. These are the kind of um, these are the um, unwitting kind of statements that 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 uh, witnesses make. Uh, not knowing that they're le actually leaving me wondering an even bigger question. This is not unusual. Somebody makes a statement and you're like, going, okay, that explains A, B, and C, but now I've got a question E I didn't have before because that seems confusing to me. But later on, you talk to another eyewitness and he covers you know, B, C, D, and E, although he never covers A. This kind okay. of puzzling between uh, where everything kind of fits ultimately is really common in, uh, in eyewitness mm. accounts. And there are several places in the Gospels that I talk about in Cold Case Christianity that uh, those things intrigued me. And also just little things, right? Because you talked about, for example, Peter being an influence on on Mark. And that's only, you know, we only know this because Papias and uh, right. some ancients will tell us that, that Mark is sitting at Peter's feet. And how would we know that? How would we? And there's lots of folks who will look at some of this. At, by the way, um, evidence is different than an inference. So, mm -hmm. so, uh, when, for example, if I'm making a case for God's existence, I'm using the exact same evidence that the non-believer is using. I just think the inference is different from the exact same evidence. This happens all the time. This is what juries do constantly. We present all this evidence. The defense doesn't, he tries to knock down some of it. But when, we're, when he's stuck with right. it, he just basically says, well, yeah, but he's making the wrong inference. It better points to this other guy. Okay. We're just trying to change the inference from the evidence. Well, the same is true in the Gospels. There are lots of people, for example, when looking at Mark's Gospel, will say well, the fact that he doesn't seem to mention Peter is an evidence against Peter's influence. Well, wait a minute. But what if he's trying to protect? Let's go back and take a look at when he doesn't mention Peter. And it turns out he leaves Peter out every time Peter does something stupid. Hmm. That's interesting. Because it might be that, that, that the omission of Peter's involvement is actually an evidence mm -hmm. for rather than an evidence mm -hmm. against if they all share this one common thing peter's doing something stupid so so it turns out there's ways of making cases with the exact same evidence i come to a different inference but i'm also doing that okay. a lot in cold cases right where the initial investigator collects this evidence and he thinks yeah because he draws an inference and i'm going to come back look at the exact same evidence and say well wait a minute but did we, can we think one level deeper here and see what it is that unifies all of this. Mm. And then we'll look for what the unifying explanation might be. And so we're, that's when, they, when you hear people talk about um, seeing the evidence that's kind of hiding in plain sight. Uh, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about, well, is it possible that you made an inference because you just didn't go the next level and look for what unified everything? So that's the stuff we're trying to do. So you're looking at Mark, you're looking at the other Gospels, mm -hmm. you notice these variants, which kind of matches up with the way eyewitness testimony often occurs. You notice these undesigned coincidences between Matthew, Mark, Luke, sometimes John, that overlap and fill in. How do you know the Gospel writers intended their writings to be taken as eyewitness? Is it as simple as them just saying, we were witnesses, we we're there, we we're reporting what we saw? Is it that simple? Like, how did you assess those claims when you saw them uh, first time you're reading it? Well, sometimes it is. We, we talked, sometimes it is just that, that they've said, you know, and if you look at first Peter, look at first John, you look at places where now, of course, this is where skeptics will come in and say, well, we're going to toss those letters out because to be sure. honest, if you include those letters, you get a unifying picture of eyewitnesses who are making it a claim. Mm 
Uh, that doesn't work well for them. So you t often I see as what they're motiv what's motivating them to toss out some of these secondary letters is really um, explainable. And any other, again, same evidence, different inference. And so I see a lot of that happening. Um, but I will tell you this, I, we talked about this earlier. I don't really, the, the authorship, like, is that really Peter? Or is that really, rather, is that really Matthew? Is that really John? Or is it a different John? I don't care who it is. I don't care if the authors of these four texts are the, one of the official later on big wig, you know, top name uh, apostles. I don't care if they're because the, the issue is, 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 it, is, the, is, the, is it the writing of an eyewitness? I, I don't I don't need it to be author, given authority because it's Matthew who's wrote it. What if it's Matthew's uh, buddy, John or uh, Phil, who happened to be, you know, not never mentioned in the scriptures, but he happened to see the whole thing. And so he wrote it down. Would, I need to know. Is it reliable eyewitness test? The uh, the actual uh, who is attributed to it is not a big concern for me. Now, mm. I'm going to say this as somebody who's looking at it as a non-Christian, right? Because I was a non-Christian when I first read it. So it didn't matter to me. It did seem odd to me, though, that if you're going to falsely attribute these accounts, you falsely attribute two of them to people that don't really seem to give you any cachet. Mm. You know, for example, mm. if you look at the non-canonical gospels and documents, they're, there's, they're not going to get attributed to someone like Mark or someone like Luke, who you'd have to read the text to even know who this dude even is. And he's not an apostle and certainly not an eyewitness of Jesus. That's a weak kind of attribution. You'd be better off taking that first paragraph of Luke's gospel out and attributing it to somebody who's in the 12. If you're trying to convince someone falsely. Mm. So it just seemed to me that that didn't seem like a, a, a heavy criteria. The question is, does this does this make a claim about a sequence of events that occurred that does seem to match up with other corroborative evidence of the first century? Does the writer appear to say that he saw this and that he could have written a lot more, as John says, but it would take too many shelves to fill those books up, right? It would take too many shelves of books yeah. to say everything that Jesus did. Are there places later on in scripture where these apostles claim to be eyewitnesses? Mm. And then you look at and say, when Luke says, yeah, I was speaking to the eyewitnesses and servants of the word, and I've looked at all the objections to that language. It's torturous. I mean, the reality of it is the plainest reading of that language is, is that Luke was with Paul, you know, years after the resurrection and had to talk to people who had seen the resurrection in order to write his gospel. Well, then who's he quoting? He quotes Matthew. He quotes Mark. I mean, he's quoting other people. So are we to accept then that these are also eyewitness accounts and they fit into that category of the eyewitnesses and servants of the word? Anyway, I, I think in the end, it, 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 there's a reason. I'm not motivated to try to include these folks. I don't even care who wrote them, but I can mm. see why a skeptic would be motivated to try to exclude these folks. Mm. And that's why I think of the two approaches, uh, that one is more sensible than the other. Okay, so you, you can make a case, and you do in the book, that the gospel writings are not anonymous. But even if they were, it wouldn't, in principle, undermine the possibility that we could ascertain eyewitness testimony within them. Is that accurate? Yes. Now, here's, here's why. Because you think, oh, it would in a criminal court. Yeah, of course it would. Because if I found a note that somebody wrote, and it describes every single thing that happened that day, yet I don't know who wrote it. Well, guess what? I'm not sure how to, what to do with that because I can't cross-examine. It's a hearsay issue, mm -hmm. but we're not doing a criminal trial here. We're doing history. So does it really matter who wrote it? He's making a claim. If it's, for example, John's gospel, let's say you don't know who wrote that gospel, but at the end, he's saying that mm -hmm. I, I'm the one who saw this, the guy, you know, I'm the one who saw all this and you know, I'm trustworthy. Okay. Now, let's just test it. By the way, I wouldn't on that basis go, oh, I guess I can trust John's gospel. No, we're going to test John's gospel the same way we test all the other gospels. If they passes the test, then why would we toss it out? So that's that's kind of the approach I took. Could I, could I test okay. these under those four criteria? That became the big thing for me. So you give kind of a four-step approach in your book. The first one is that the gospels are written early. Now, before you jump in and make your case... Obviously, they have to be written within the lifetime of the person who is alleged to have written it, or at least within the lifetime of somebody who could have been present to see these events. But how vital is it that we date it kind of into the 60s, which you typically do? For example, things like Acts don't include the death of Paul, 
Or if we took, say, into the 80s, which is where Craig Keener is keen to date them, does that difference matter in your mind as a detective? If so, why and how much does it matter? Well, um, it does matter. Um, so so when I, if I didn't know anything from a common sense perspective, but I did know the 13 questions that are in the California jury instructions, well, then I said, okay, I don't know. I don't know anything about eyewitness testimony, but I know the judges are tell jurors that they need to consider these 13 things when they're listening to an eyewitness on the stand. If I broke those 13 things down into four major categories, there they are. Is it written early enough to be written by an eyewitness? Can it be corroborated in some way? Has this guy been honest and accurate over time or has he been changing his story? And third, mm -hmm. does he have a motive to lie to me? Those are the things we test. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, let's test them under those four criteria. Now, the first one is going to be, is it is this early enough to have been written by an eyewitness? So Acts, I'm not as concerned about as I am the four gospels, but Acts okay. gives us the key that unlocks the dating of the four gospels because as you kind of lock down the writing of Acts, it, it ends up backing up the writing of Luke. And this backs up the writing, or backs mm -hmm. it in time, up to mm -hmm. uh, whatever he's considering an eyewitness account. And and he's he's clearly comparing his account in the first chapter of Luke to other early accounts. I say mm -hmm. this all the time in, um, in uh, presentations on the stage, but if I said, this is my black clicker, okay, what am I really telling you? Words matter. I'm not just telling you this is my black clicker. I just told you I have more than one clicker. Because clearly you can see it's black. That optional word black is only necessary if I have another clicker that's not black. This is my black clicker. I happen to have a gray clicker as well. Now I just told you I have two clickers, but I never actually say that. Well, Luke does the same thing. He makes a comparison. He says that using optional words, he doesn't need to use. He says that his account is careful. I've carefully written this account to you, Theophilus, so you may know with certainty all the things that you have been taught. Well, he's carefully, why would you need to say it's careful? I can read the account and see it's pretty robust, but he's saying it's careful because if there's another early account that's a different color clicker, this would separate his account from the gray clicker. Mm -hmm. And that account is the gospel of Mark, I believe, because Mark, when compared to Luke, is pretty, Matthew compared to Luke can hold its own, but Mark is really short compared to Luke. Mm -hmm. Doesn't seem to be as careful. He also says that, that his account is in the correct chronological chronological order. He says it's orderly. That that Greek word is not tidy. It means it's in the right chronological order. Well, why would you need to say that? Because if there's another gray clicker account out there that's not in the right chronolo chronological order, this hmm. would separate my account from his. And that's what he's talking about. It's Mark's account. Because Mark, when compared to Luke, just do it. You'll see there are some places where the chronology is slightly different. And Papias tells us that, 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 that was, he, this has been known for centuries because Papias said that his account was accurate, if not orderly. Here's my whole point. Uh, the dating of Acts, it only to me, is helpful in that it backs up into the dating of... Now, I don't know how you could... Even if someone like Craig, who's a friend of mine, a friend of yours, I think he would, he would say we're friends. We, we were back and forth sure. all the time. So, so, But we don't agree on this issue. That's okay. Um, the question is, why don't we agree on it? What is the evidence upon which he's making his case? I'm a little bit hesitant when the entire reason you don't like a case is based on literary criticism, not looking at the events that are missing, but instead looking at the style of writing, looking at these kinds of things. Those kinds of things don't seem to matter to me because I, I, I've worked cases from 30 years ago where the detective who wrote the supplemental report ends up, it was four detectives who wrote it. Oh, didn't wow. end up on the, on the top or he, he, one of them, he sat down to a steno and she typed it and corrected his errors as he was speaking it to her. Very common back mm -hmm. in the day. Mm -hmm. And it was typed, not in a computer. So if you make a slight mistake, you just leave it, <laughs> you know, it's good enough because you know how you're going to go back and get that two paragraphs ago. So, so, you know, you see these kinds of errors and it based, is it based on the technology and the number of people writing? And certainly we had technology problems and number of people writing in the first century. So I'm not convinced sometimes the best way to determine whether this is actually from the hand of Moses or the hand of, of, of one writer, uh, you could base this. It, first of all, you have to assume then that he is the actual writer. There's no scribe involved, that there's only mm -hmm. one scribe involved mm -hmm. rather than two or three, and that the technology did not inhibit. So, so I think this is, to me, it's a big, too big of an assumption to make. What okay. I can say is this, there's missing data in the book of Acts that backs this up. Yes, the, the temple is, is, is still, it, it, it has not been destroyed. But worse than that is the siege. 
Because if you're writing a history of New York, I don't care if you're writing about terrorism in New York, you're just writing about life in New York or around New York or in the state of New York. A hundred years from now, you never mention the Twin Tower attacks. I'm going to go, why? Why would you leave that out and write a history of this region? If you're writing a history of the region in which one of the primary characters, James, has got a, the biggest church in the in the system at the time in Jerusalem, would you not mention this terrible siege? I'm sure there are lots of ways you could describe how God was working through that, blah, 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 blah. It's missing. The siege and the destruction of the temple and the death of Paul and the death of Peter and the death of James and the death of Barnabas. These are people who are major figures. Look, James, the brother of John, is a nobody. Yet his death is mentioned by Luke in 44. So why would James, the brother of Jesus, a much bigger James, be missing in 61? I think it's written before 61. Hmm. So I think that's why I, I date these kind. Now, look, could I be wrong? Yes, of course. Look, I say it this way all the time. Anything is possible, but I'm after what's reasonable. Sure. I'm not after what's possible. They claim to be eyewitness accounts. The earliest church fathers consider them eyewitness accounts, and they lack the data that comes out of anything beyond the life of eyewitnesses. Okay, mm -hmm. it seems like that's reasonable to infer that this is probably the work of an eyewitness. Now, you can still say it's false. It could be an eyewitness who's lying. That's why we do the test. But the first test is, is it even early enough to count as an eyewitness claim? So if it was in the 80s, assuming Luke was still alive, then mm -hmm. it would be possible for it to still be an eyewitness account, right? Yes. In, in principle, because John writes into the 90s. But does it right. lose some of its authority? Like, and if so, since John was written so much later, do you put less stock in that than Mark being written earlier? No, I, I don't. Well, here's why. I, I don't think it's written in the 80s. But if, if it was, let's say sure. it was written in 85. The question then is, does the still, does the missing data of the death of the four most, four of them, if you look at those four mm -hmm. people, Paul, James, mm -hmm. Peter, and Barnabas, all who die in the 60s or later, or the uh, early 60s or later, they're all missing from that account. I think this is reasonable for us to ask why. The author is also claiming he had access to the eyewitnesses and servants of the word, which he wouldn't have if another generation passes. I think they're, so to me, I'm trying to get not to what, what when is Acts dated. I'm trying to get back to when is Luke dated and then when are, is anything prior to Luke dated. So, and by the way, all of the dating I'm offering lines up with the, with the dating of the letters <laughs> That people like Bart Ehrman will agree at least that, hey, you know, he he thinks Romans is written by by Paul. He thinks First Corinthians mm -hmm. is written by Paul and he dates these things in, in the 60s. He, he may yeah. not. First Corinthians, he dates in the 50s. In the 50s, yeah. Yeah. So 53 to 57, right in that range. So, so I mean, he, that all works if if the dating I've offered is true. So I'm not as concerned. Yeah. So, so I don't think that if, it, if Acts is written in the 80s. I don't think it has it. Now, the bigger question, John, is this. Can somebody take something they saw and right. retain it long mm -hmm. enough to be accurate 30 years later? And I would offer yes. Here's what I mean. If um, when I wrote um, Cold Case Christianity, if you knew my presentation I give to students because you were there to see it, you'll see that my book is word for word that presentation. Why? Because I'd given that presentation so many times to so many people you do too if you were to look back at to pick your most popular presentation yeah okay and you look back at the transcript not only that compare the wave files if you're given 30 minutes to give that presentation and you've done it over and over again i want you to compare the mm -hmm. wave files you will see that your pauses and your peaks line up pretty well because you do it over and over and over again yet you never do it as much as the enthusiastic eyewitnesses repeated what they saw in the first century. They repeated it over and over and over and over again. It's very mm -hmm. different to say, I've got a witness who says they were there 30 years ago and never told anyone this stuff. And now they're coming up and trying to recall it for the first time 30 years later. That's very different. On the other hand, if you have witnesses who basically repeated the story several times a day for 30 years, well, now we're just writing it down. This is not a matter of, it's, it's a repetition. And also, you probably don't feel that your talks, I don't feel that my talks are as precious as an observation that they thought was precious. 
Mm. So the care that I take to repeat my talks over and over and over mm. again is very different than the, if I was telling you something that was of critical importance that would save your spiritual life. Well, that, that takes on a higher priority. And those kinds of talks, if you've got certain things you, you, you say all the time. I remember one time my daughter was at a, at a book table with me at an event and she said, I've heard this talk now like 20 times. I could do the whole <laughs> talk word for word. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true. Because I used to tease Frank Turek about this. I used yeah. to tease Frank that he would do the same joke with the same pause, the exact same yes, delivery. One time he started his talk and he skipped. He started and he was about to skip a joke. He always puts right there and he stopped and his brain kind of refired and he backed up and told the joke anyway. And I thought, <laughs> oh my goodness, this is because you, you do it over and over and over again. Yeah. So, and also I don't think every memory is created equal. And that's the bigger part, you know, it's, that's it's fair. The, that, yeah. I, mean, I always say it this way that not every, you know, uh, uh, Valentine's Day is the same for people. I mean, I've had 45 Valentine's Days mm. with Susie and I can't remember any of them except for one in 1988 because that was the day I married her. So mm. not every Valentine's Day is the same for me. And we often will see in criminal trials, a defense attorney will challenge an eyewitness. Oh, really? So let me get this right. So you think you saw that he had blue colored glasses? That's a pretty minute detail. Tell me how you can remember that 30 years ago. How you couldn't even remember you take off his, I had one guy take off his own glasses, come back into the courtroom before he asked the question, what color are my glasses? And of course the witness is like, I, I don't know. You couldn't even remember the color of my glasses and I'm right in front of you mm. a half an hour ago. You're telling me you can remember the color of his glasses from somebody 30 years ago. Redirect. Mm. Okay. Now the prosecutor's redirecting the question. Okay. So Mr. Witness, how many times have you seen guys with glasses? Oh, hundreds of times. And guys like this defense attorney? Yes. How many times have you witnessed a murder? Hmm. Once. Will you ever forget it? No. Is it kind of etched in your mind in a way that other memories are different? Yeah. And that stuff ends up, ends up being pretty persuasive in front of a jury. Not hmm. every memory is created equal. Well, I don't remember a lot of Valentine's Days either, but I remember the day after Valentine's Day in 1991. Because that's the first day I asked my wife out to go with me, and she said yes. But that is another story. Now right. you have a four-part case. By the way, by the way, could you imagine if I said, "Forget about February 14th. I want y'all in the room here to remember the last significant February 15th." Then no one's mm. going to remember that date. But well, you I would. That's right, <laughs> that's because exactly every right. memory is not every memory is created equal. That's a great. Right. That's a great point. Okay, so we we spent some time unpacking this first one. Let's move through the next three a little bit more quickly, just so people can right. see kind of the holistic case you're making. The second one is corroboration. Maybe just mention how this is important for detective and just some of the basic things you noticed as you looked at the gospels. Yeah. So corroboration of an eyewitness could be another eyewitness who repeats the claim. It could be something okay. that uh, has been moved. The way that the guy said it was moved. Some physical evidence that matches what they're saying. Uh, so in the gospel case, for example, we're looking at things like archaeology, things like mm -hmm. the use of words that we find out later are actually confirmed in ancient documents, even if, mm -hmm. in fact, they were doubted at the time. This happens in the Gospel of Luke quite a bit. We're looking at internal corroboration. Isn't it interesting that they happen to use the right proper nouns when, in fact, uh, there's lots of proper nouns of Jewish men and women in other regions that don't would not be the correct. So if I'm writing, for example, out of Egypt, like many, or North Africa, like many of the Gnostic Gospels, they don't use a lot of proper nouns. You don't get a lot of character development because they don't even know what the names of those people would be. They're writing from Egypt. So I think in the end, uh, there's a number of things. I always tell people, though, that we are looking for touchpoint corroboration. Touchpoint corroboration. That's good. No piece of corroboration on any case I've ever had will give you every detail. It's not like we're doing a case like today where everyone's got video from their phone. That's okay, great. That doesn't happen this way. And instead, you, if someone says, hey, you jumped over the counter. And he was wearing a, a black tank top, jumped over the counter, pulled a gun from his waistband and screamed, get down on the floor. Well, where did he jump? Right here. Okay, I'm doing, I fingerprint the counter. I get a palm print. Well, that palm print is going to be used as corroborative evidence. That's exactly where this witness says he jumped the counter. But the palm print will tell me nothing about what he's wearing, if he had a gun mm. or what he said. It's just touch point corroboration. So you have to be very realistic about what you're looking for in terms of corroboration. Mm. And then two, do we have, now, for example, uh, does, does archaeology confirm every locational detail? 
or even like the kind of money. No, of course it doesn't in scripture, but it, it touch point corroborates a ton. By the way, mm. under Mormonism, you won't find a single claim of the Book of Mormon regarding the North American continent that has any corroboration archaeologically. I don't expect every detail to be corroborated, but I would be suspicious if not a single detail was corroborated. Mm. And that's what we're kind of looking for here, touch point corroboration. That makes sense. That's helpful. Let's move to the third one. Mm -hmm. And this is where it, it involves assessing what was said and how well it was preserved. Now, typically, apologists will discuss textual criticism, and you have a little bit of that, but primarily mm -hmm. take a, a, a different route. So what is the chain of custody and how that works in a detective case? And how did you translate that to uh, the Gospels? So my assumption, my biggest concern as a non-believer was that, hey, there was probably some version of Jesus that was much different than the version we have today. Mm -hmm. There was, as Paul, as, uh, as Bart Irma would say, there was the Jesus of history and the Christ of Christianity. And there's a transition mm -hmm. between a period of exaggeration over 300 years in which one becomes the other. That seemed reasonable to me. And in criminal trials, it might happen. You've seen this, this uh, series of making of a murderer. One of the claims is, is that the evidence was pulled out of property after the fact and then tampered with in some way to make it look like this is our suspect when in fact or he's guilty or he found his blood over here whatever it may be but it wasn't really there in the beginning so the question then becomes how do we trace that evidence if, if for example the blood stain was allegedly i think on a key a set of keys well the question we would ask is do we have a picture at the search warrant where the keys were first discovered if so can we see the blood smear if not then we know it was added later so what we're looking for, but if the blood smear is there, that dude's taking a Polaroid back in the day when my dad would work. He took a Polaroid. The officer at the scene might take a Polaroid. Back then, we had police officers doing all the CSI. <laughs> like the cop would show up and end up bagging the evidence. It was crazy. So so you, the question is, is, did someone take a picture, write a report? Who'd he give it to? Mm -hmm. He probably took another picture, wrote another report. Who'd he give it to? He goes to the crime lab. They take pictures, write their own reports. Who'd they give it to? I come and pick it up. I wrote my own report, picking it up. I bring it to trial. So now you can see who has touched this piece of evidence heel to toe. Gotcha. You can see them like links in a chain connecting the past to the present. So I just needed to know when I was first looking at the scriptures, what is the earliest version of Jesus? In other words, if I had this link, this chain of custody, and I could see the first link, how do I know that first link really is the same as the last link? Well, I could ask the question, who's in the second link? Let's see what the second link people say. If the second link people describe Jesus, but fail to mention key things about Jesus, like the virgin birth or the resurrection or ascending into heaven or any of these miracles, well, then we know there was a more primitive version of Jesus out there. And that, that this evolved. Maybe we could even spot where these elements were added over time by examining each link. Here's what I know. As we did this with the Gospels, it turns out that the miraculous claims, the ones that would give me pause, like I'm not concerned sure. whether there was five loaves of bread or, or three loaves of bread or two loaves of bread. That does not, that's not as big a claim to me as did he rise from the grave? That's a big claim. Is that missing in the earliest versions? I need to know. So you can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the chain of custody. Here's what I can tell you. It doesn't change. You may not believe it. You may not like it. You may have other problems with it. But the idea that somehow the Jesus, simple Jesus of Nazareth morphs into the Christ of Christianity is just not supported by the evidence. Mm. So your first point is about the dating. You made that case. The second is yep. looking for corroboration. Mm -hmm. The third is how well this has been preserved. You just made that mm -hmm. case about the chain of custody and the core belief system going back to the beginning, right. not changing. Fourth step is that it's free from bias. What convinces you, especially because you said you're used to dealing with people who intentionally lie and eyewitnesses lie at least somewhat frequently? Do you remember that old series house about the doctor who's trying mm -hmm. to diagnose these weird things? And you always mm -hmm. say his key catchphrase was everyone lies. And so he's figuring out, hey, this, this patient is lying about something and that's the key to solving what it is this patient has. Well, I kind of assume mm -hmm. the same thing. Everyone's lying. The question is, why are they lying? So if I had to give you a kind of gold, silver and bronze medal of liars and why people lie, well, they're standing on a podium like you do at any uh, medal ceremony, right? They're standing on a podium. That podium is something called pride. Mm. Pride is the problem that is that the gospel solves because it's pride that separates us from God. It's thinking that they're, we are God, that it's our way. We want our way. By the way, the only solution for pride is humility, but that's a whole other issue. It's another book. So the, the question here is, what are the three things that stand on the podium of pride? 
Well, they are. And these are the only reasons why anyone commits a crime, why anyone lies, why anyone commits a sin, why anyone does anything they shouldn't do. It's motivated on that podium called pride, and it is financial greed, sexual lust, and the pursuit of power is number one. Mm. That number one position in pursuit of power is probably a 70% of all prideful motivations. But here's what's wow. great about that. If I'm looking at somebody and I'm wondering, why is this dude lying to me? Only three reasons. Financial greed, sexual lust, pursuit of power. Yes, mm. they stand on the pride pedestal, but that's the, I need to know the three. Like, what, how does it flesh out? So it turns out that's always what it is. So if the gospel authors are lying, they're lying for one of those three reasons. They're either getting something out of it financially, getting something out of it sexually, or they are getting something out of it from a position of authority. And I think that last position is what people like Bart think is the problem. Is these were nobodies until they became somebodies on the basis of this lie. But that doesn't really work when you actually fact check it because Paul was a somebody. He was already a somebody. And he was a somebody of a larger group that although they were not like well respected by the Romans, they were a heck of a lot more respected than the smaller group he's going to jump into. And it was going to mm. cost him something to become a leader in that smaller group. He listened to his own writings. He's going to get his butt kicked all over the planet for the next 30 years, hoping to return to something he already has. I mean, it's possible. I just don't think it's reasonable. And, and look, these folks were willing to die for their cause. <clears throat> and in the end, if we know it's a lie, Look, I, I get you. You wrote the best, most definitive work on this: the death of the apostle, uh, the fate of the apostles, and and I'm like you. I don't think that every one of these stories is well documented or is as trustworthy as as some. Some are more trustworthy than others. Here's why I, I think it's really interesting. I've read all of the I, for the book called Person of Interest. I read all of the non-Christian voices recorded before the Council of Nicaea. Every document regards who was written by that records a non-Christian voice. Here's what you'll discover. Before the Council of Nicaea, there was a pretty concerted effort to disprove the, the gospel accounts, to call them out as liars, to get people to recant their testimony. It didn't happen, right? We saw this under several uh, Roman authorities who got Christians to recant their beliefs, to say, okay, I don't believe it anymore. But they aren't eyewitnesses. Here's what you don't have is any recorded recanting of a statement by an alleged eyewitness. All you have are second and third generation people who are under pressure and who will say, okay, I'm, I won't be a Christian anymore if you'll spare my life. What you don't have is any evidence that any of these, there's no alternative stories, mm. right? The stories we have are pretty, uh, conform, pretty much the same. And they are that the disciples died for their testimony. What you don't have are like, well, you got four of these where he doesn't and one, you know, no, sure. they're, they're pretty much uniform. <laughs> and that uniformity actually is helpful. By the way, you and I would say we would die for what we believe as Christians. It has no evidential value. I agree. There's lots of people who die where they don't know is a lie. But this is the one group that would know if it's a lie. And mm -hmm. that to me was a powerful thing to consider. So there's the fourth thing is what are they lying? There's only four reasons, three reasons why anyone lies. So the question becomes, uh, can I find something in there? I just don't see it. Mm -hmm. So in the end, look, um, if the evidence is pointing 70, 30 or 60, 40 in the direction of this, why do we, why are we, why do we find ourselves trying to pull back to make it feel like this? Yes. Can you make a case against Christianity? Yeah. Isn't it interesting that God gives you more than enough evidence to determine this is true yet enough wiggle to determine it isn't mm -hmm. because he's such a respecter of your free agents. And he knows that the one thing that changes everything is love and love by its very nature has to be offered freely. He is not going to coerce you or create robots who are just born with an innate sense this is true. Instead, he's going to give you the chance to do the one thing that even the atheist values more than anything else, and that is the chance to love freely. And that's the thing that God gives us by allowing us this much disparity. Jim, I've got one more question for you. But you mm -hmm. mentioned my work on the apostles, which, by the way, this spring I'm working on a 10-year update on that. There you it go. Was on a trip to Berkeley. We had an atheist, a mutual friend of ours, speaking to our students. He challenged if the apostles lived, uh, let alone died as martyrs. And I was like, Jim, do you think this is a good dissertation title? You said, it's great, and I've got a bunch of books. Go for it. So you were probably the key person to tell me to do my dissertation on that, which well, is pretty cool. Well, you know what's cool funny is I was, getting ready to start, I was getting ready to start a blog series mm. on the fate of the apostles. So I had collected all these books. You and did. Then what I typically do is I collect the first set of books, look at their bibliographies, 
collect that set, look at their bibliographies, collect that set. And I was maybe yep. two rounds into that when you okay. mentioned this. And I'm like, well, damn, I'm not going to write this. There's no point. And this, so I just gave all my books to you. And I said, okay, here you go. Let's see what I, you can do. And I'm here trying I love to be a great that's, book. So. That, that's fun. Cool, cool memories. Going back a decade. So last question. Right. You're a detective. You're examining this. And you're starting to see, guy, this is early dating. Uh, there's corroborative evidence. Uh, I don't find any good bias here. But there was a supernatural component that was here. Mm -hmm. If you were studying this in any other text, wouldn't you be likely to dismiss the supernatural? So why accept that here when it comes to the New Testament? Well, I, I don't think I ever... Yeah, I, I was a very committed naturalist, but I think I, as I'm working through this, and one of the things I had to do is ask myself a question, could my philosophical naturalism explain the universe the way it really is? So when I wrote God's yeah. Crime Scene, that's not like I did that next. No, that's actually what I kind of did first. And when oh, I pitched the books to, 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 you were the one who said I should write this book. So I pitched mm. three books to the publisher, God's Crime Scene, Forensic Faith, and Cold Case Christianity. I wasn't yep. sure which would, I kind of thought the order should be God's Crime Scene, Cold Case Christianity, and Forensic Faith. They mm. picked Cold Case Christian because it alliterates so well. They thought the title God's Crime Scene was terrible. <laughs> so they said, no, we don't want that one. We want this one. So that's why I wrote them in that order. But for me, I had to look and say, did my philosophical naturalism, uh, was it, was it, was it reliable? Is it, is there, can I explain the origin of the universe, the fine tuning of the universe, the appearance of life in the universe, the appearance of design and biology, the, the consciousness, uh, free agency, objective moral truths, and even a standard of righteousness by which we judge something and call it evil. Can I get that from space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry? Because that's all I thought governed the universe, space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. Mm. Well, you can't get the most important features of the universe from a, by, by looking at those, those causal factors. That, so it turns out that if there is something out there that is the cause of all those eight things, why would we doubt it couldn't interact? I always say it all the time. I think Turek does the same thing. We talk about, hey, I can stop gravity as a finite being. You don't think the author of gravity could intercede in gravity, could change, could, could interact in the, in the actual alleged laws we talk about that govern nature? He's the governor of the govern, governing laws. So I think the reality of it is, is that once I got past the idea there was something out there uh, that is immaterial that hasn't now so when i come to a text and i see something that's a claim i no longer say well miracles by their very nature Got are it. ridiculous but i yeah. would say that untested anything is ridiculous even a naturalist uh, if, uh, uh, eyewitness account that's a pretty natural thing we can do mm. i those have to be tested I don't trust them without testing. I don't trust miracle claims without testing. I don't trust physical evidence claims without testing. Everything has to be, here's why, because some defense attorney is going to test that in front of you, in front of a Dateline camera, if you don't test it now. So I'll tell you what, you test it now, you won't be a fool later. So that's always been the approach we've taken. So I, yeah, all of it needs to be tested. And by the way, when I, I was worked on a, on a show one time, I, well, the very famous director came to me. Uh, you know his work. He does a lot of macabre kind of science fiction, uh, cultic kind of uh, horror kind of stuff, movies. And he wanted to do a TV show in which we examined cases in which it wasn't really clear if this could be explained with a natural mm. suspect or with a supernatural force. So I had to develop a criteria by which I would judge the difference. It turns out that, yes, you start, of course, with you start at the bottom of the ladder. And the bottom of the ladder is material suspects. The top of the ladder is something immaterial. Now, if you hit a, you know rung number five and you got the answer, you stop. So, yeah. so I've never had a case in which I couldn't explain it as I'm climbing that ladder. I might make a few missteps, gotcha. but by rung number five, I got a suspect. Hmm. If you don't, you keep climbing the ladder. <laughs> and so he wanted to look at cases where people had already That's climbed the ladder 10, 10 levels and they hadn't figured out who it was. Maybe it's a demon. Maybe it's something like that. Well, then the question would be, well, how would we even identify demonic forces versus natural forces? This became a huge conversation and it was fun. And by the way, it never developed beyond mm. the, you know, the, the kind of planning stages, but. This is similar to Dembski's filter. Look at natural causes first right. and then only design once you've ruled out natural causes. And by the way, I framed this to you, I realized in a way where I said, if you'd seen these kind of supernatural claims in any other text, 
you'd reject it. But when it came to, say, the Book of Mormon, you already made it clear that it's not equal with the New Testament in terms of historical reliability. That's right. And so we can reject it before we get to those supernatural claims. Yes, that's, that's an important right. distinction to make. I just interviewed an ex, uh, a former radical Muslim, and he described how when he looked at the Quran, these statements were just, there was no historical context, no detail. They were kind of free floating. And we'd read the Bible. He's like, wow, people, places, times we can investigate. There's a qualitative distinction that's there. Okay, Jim, that's I got You said that too, before you cut off. That's a really another good distinction for what eyewitness accounts have. These mm -hmm. kinds of claims about people, places, events, and sequences of events are unique and uh, they are native to eyewitness accounts, which, by mm -hmm. the way, the, the Gospels didn't have to be that way. They could have been like like the Quran, in a sense, or like Baha'u'llah's writings, just proverbial claims. It could have been all like this book of Proverbs, in which case you would say, well, no one assumes Proverbs is an eyewitness account, but you assume the chronology at least has the capacity to be an eyewitness account. Let's test it. That's what we're trying mm -hmm. to do here. Well, Jim, I was fascinated the first time I heard you present this to students, maybe 13, 14 years ago, whatever it was. I uh, love the first uh, edition of Cold Case Christianity came out. The 10-year edition is even better if that is such a possible thing. If folks haven't read it by now, follow my channel, hit pause and go read it. It's up there on one of the top popular level books that I recommend for people. It's always good to have you on. Now, folks, before you click away, make sure you hit subscribe. But even further, if you want to study apologetics, we would love to have you join us at Biola. Jim is an adjunct professor for us. He will teach a class every year or two, kind of a weekend class. Top-rated apologetics program of its kind, now fully distance program. And by the way, next May, next May, I'm teaching oh. my apolo applied apologetics class. So if you're watching this and you're in the program or thinking about getting in the program, I guarantee you that class will be worth your time. Or if you're not, Now's the time to sign up to mm -hmm. be in his class in May. That's awesome. We also have a certificate program if you're not ready for master's and a discount below. We'd love to walk through training you more formally in apologetics. Jim, this is always fun. Thanks for coming on. Give Susie my love. Thanks so much. I appreciate you, Sean.